Hello, and welcome to the Latin American History Podcast, episode 26, Nicolas Diabando, an early Hispaniola, part one. Now that we've wrapped up the story of Columbus, there's no question of him coming back to reclaim his colony. The new and third governor was in charge, and the colony was really starting to take shape. At the time of Columbus's death, it had been in existence for 18 years, and the settlement at Santo Domingo had been around for the last eight. It was now truly a Spanish possession, rather than Columbus's personal project, and as such, it was evolving and growing all the time. Today, I want to take a look at the early settlement, to discuss some of the major events surrounding its first few decades, and to try and get a better idea about how it looked and felt. The new governor was Nicolas de Ovando y Cáceres, who I will just call Ovando. We've already met him. Last episode, he was the man who refused Columbus' entry to the port during the hurricane, and who dragged his feet when it came to rescuing Columbus from Jamaica. Now we will give him a proper introduction. Ovando was born in 1460 in central Spain, fairly near to the border with Portugal. He was from a noble family, and in fact he shares a name, Cáceres, with the largest town in the area. His family owned a feudal manor there, and so possibly took their name from the land they owned, a common practice in Europe at the time. He was also distantly related to the conquistador Hernán Cortés through his mother, and it was Orvando who would give Cortés his start in life in the New World. Before coming to the New World, Orvando was a knight in the Order of Alicantara, a military holy order similar to the much more famous Knights Templar. We don't know much about his life in Spain, but he managed to catch the eye of Queen Isabella, and he was chosen to succeed Bobadilla as the third governor of the Indies. He set off in February 1502, at the age of 41, to take up his post. I hinted earlier that much of the initial growth of the colony took place under the rule of Ovando. Some of this was due to his governance, but some of it was clearly thanks to the actions and intentions of the crown. Columbus had made a bit of a hash of governing, and Bobadilla had not achieved too much either. Ten years had passed since Columbus had set foot on Hispaniola, and the monarchy really wanted to jump-start the process of colonisation. Ovando set off in a fleet of 30 ships, which carried 2,500 new colonists. I've been unable to find out exactly how many people were living there at the time, but we know that Columbus took around 1,000 with him on his second voyage, and six ships worth of people on his third. We don't know how many Bobadilla took with him, or how many other ships had arrived over the life of the colony. We do know, however, that some of those who Columbus had taken with him had given up and gone back to Spain, and that mortality rates were high due to disease. I'm going to make a guess based on this information, and I stress that this is a complete guess, but I reckon these new arrivals may have come close to doubling the population of the colony. This fleet was like a who's who for future conquistadors. On it were many names which will become familiar over the upcoming episodes. Bartolomeo de las Casas, Dinicuesa, Diayon and Pizarro were all definitely aboard, 
and Ponce de Leon may have also been, although he had already spent time in the New World. Hernan Cortes was supposed to come along as well, but in classic Cortes style, he was caught in the bedroom of a married woman soon before the fleet set sail, and was injured in his escape. Ovando did not get an easy start to his rule. The same year he arrived, the colony was struck by a hurricane, which more or less destroyed their settlement. It was worth pointing out again here that this was their third attempt at a settlement. The first two had been destroyed as well. Rather than relocate again, Santo Domingo was rebuilt, albeit on the other side of the river, and so this is why it can claim to be the oldest settlement in the Americas, despite having been destroyed. This rebuilding gives us a chance to have a look at the settlement, as it was now that its layout was being fixed. The Osama River formed the eastern boundary of the city, while the sea formed the southern one. A few decades after the rebuilding, walls were built to enclose the northern and western sides of the city and protect it from attack. This was complemented by a number of forts. The earliest of these was built in 1502 and overlooks the port. This is the oldest surviving European fortress in the Americas, and it looks it. I don't mean by that that it looks run down. Instead, I'm talking about its style of architecture. Most forts in the Americas have a colonial style to them, and look like a product of the post-medieval world. This one, however, looks very medieval, with its battlement-topped square tower and windowless walls. Beside the fortress was one of the city gates, which sat at the bottom of the Calle de las Damas, one of the main thoroughfares of the settlement. This street ran parallel to the river, and it was the first one built in the new city. Many of the colony's most prominent citizens built their mansions along it. The grandest of these was the Governor's Palace, built by Diego Columbus in 1509. A block away sits the first cathedral in the Americas, which was started in 1512, but not finished until 1540. The rest of the city was arranged in a grid formation, although the grid was not as straight and neat as in later colonial settlements. Running at a right angle to the Calle de las Damas was the Calle Las Mercedes, perhaps the city's second most important street, and which soon emerged as the home of the settlement's banks and financial institutions. I've not been to Santo Domingo, but it's on my list. All of these sites survive to this day, and so the city is one of the most important colonial settlements in the Americas. Under Ovando, it wasn't just Santo Domingo that grew. The colony also started to expand into the rest of the island, and new towns were founded. Within a decade of his arrival, around a dozen reasonably sized towns had been established in the Caribbean. The land started to be exploited as well, as this was an essential part of making the colony self-sustaining. If you cast your mind back, you may remember that Columbus had founded a fort inland from his settlement at La Isabella. It's not clear if this fort was continually occupied, but thanks to the discovery of gold in the area, the site turned into a boomtown. Although, like Santo Domingo, this would also soon be destroyed by the forces of nature, this time an earthquake, and have to be rebuilt nearby. This would grow to become today's city of Concepcion, the third largest in the Dominican Republic. 
By now you probably know that I love foreshadowing future trends in Latin American history, so of course I couldn't miss the chance to mention that the phenomenon of boomtowns inspired by the discovery of precious metals will be a recurring theme in this podcast. When I said that Ovando had a difficult start to his governorship, it was not just the hurricane which made it so. By this point, the Tainos of the island had decided that enough was enough, and were flat out hostile to the Spanish. Ovando was up for the challenge this presented, however, and set about asserting Spanish dominance. If Columbus and Bobadilla had treated the Tainos badly on occasions, they had nothing on Ovando, who soon became known for his ruthlessness. Even by the standards of the time, he was noted for the enthusiasm with which he attacked them. He started off with a female cacique named Ana Caona. As we've seen in previous episodes, it's no good thinking of the Tainos as a monolithic block. There were lots of different political units, and each of them took a different attitude towards the Spanish. Ana Caona had apparently been friendly towards them, but Avando believed that she was planning to attack. It is possible that he got this idea from another cacique, the same one who had initially met Columbus, allowed him to build a settlement, and had possibly been responsible for the death of those settlers while Columbus was away. Have a listen to episode 21 for that story, if you haven't already. Now, Anacoana's lands were way over on the other side of the island, in today's Haiti, but Ovando was convinced that she posed a threat. He arranged a meeting with her and her leaders, making it appear that his intentions were friendly, but then used the opportunity to capture her and her leadership. He burnt alive 80 of the most important people of her tribe, and took her back to Santo Domingo to be executed. This was just the beginning, and over the following years Avando basically continued massacring his way around the island, until there was close to nothing left. It's estimated that around 500,000 Tainos lived on the island before the Spanish arrived. In 1507, there were only 60,000, and although some still lived independently, many of these had been enslaved. Some of these deaths would have come about from disease introduced by the Spanish. While the Spanish perhaps still bear responsibility for this, at least it was not intentional in the way that Avando's massacres were. Some of the Tainos would have died due to the actions of people before Avando arrived as well, so we can't put 100% of the blame at his feet. By all accounts, though, we can blame him for the majority of it, and as the first few years were spent just trying to survive for the Spanish, the killings can't really have got properly started before his rule. A population drop of almost 90% in just 15 years is astounding. These scenes will be recreated, not just in the Americas, but wherever the colonial empires went, but few cases match this one for brutality and comprehensiveness. The commonly accepted version of history is that those remaining died out over the next few decades, and in 1510 the number surviving was 33,523. In 1514 it was just 26,334. This number probably does exclude some Tainos who escaped into the mountains, and thus avoided the Spaniards conducting these censuses. But still, you can see the macabre trend. It is certainly true that there have been no truly indigenous people on the island for centuries. 
Recent genetic studies, however, are starting to force us to reassess things slightly. It seems that Taino genes live on in the population of the Dominican Republic, with one study finding that 15% of people tested in the region of Cibao have indigenous blood. This is mixed mainly with European and African DNA. There must then have been some interbreeding in this early stage of the colony. Speaking of African DNA, Ovando also oversaw another momentous moment and historical atrocity in the history of Latin America. It was during his rule that the first African slaves were brought over to the colony. Now obviously this is not an occasion to be celebrated, but it does see the third major cultural leg of the Latin American stool being added, the other two being the indigenous people and the Iberians. Despite their adverse circumstances, the African population of Latin America will make an enormous contribution to the region. They will do this not just in terms of the labour they were forced to provide. It was they who physically built much of Latin America after all, and worked the land which provided its wealth. But they will also do it in terms of culture. They helped make Latin America such a vibrant and fascinating place. At this point, however, what their arrival tells us most clearly is how the economy of the island was developing under Ovando. The first shipment of slaves was purchased in Lisbon and was made up of Africans captured by the Portuguese in West Africa and some who had grown up on the Iberian Peninsula. They were brought in to work in the new mines, like that at Concepcion, and the plantations which were being established. As we've seen in previous episodes, the idea of plantations had been tested in the Atlantic Islands by both the Spanish and Portuguese, and here they found the perfect climate to grow cash crops. Ovando had already tried bringing in enslaved indigenous people from the Bahamas, having discovered that killing so many of Hispaniola's inhabitants left him with few people to enslave. This was an imperfect solution, however, and it was decided to ship in Africans. Sugar quickly became an important cash crop, as did cattle and later tobacco when smoking had been introduced to Europe. Farming these things is a labour-intensive job, and the Spanish there were few in number. Alongside the small trickle of Africans, the plantations and mines were still worked by encomieros. What were encomieros? Well, to explain that, first I have to explain another important event in the early colony, the proclamation of Las Leyes de Burgos. The laws of Burgos, as they're known in English, were the first real attempt by the Spanish crown to create a coherent policy towards the native peoples of the Americas. Pronounced in 1512, the laws had 35 clauses and came from the king himself. In episode 23, Setting the Scene, I talked about the tensions between the religious motivation for actions in the New World and the profit-based one. While the origin of these laws came from the first battle in this conflict, Spanish colonists had been taking Tainos and forcing them to work since pretty much the beginning of the colony. Alongside this forced labour, all manner of other abuses were taking place. A Dominican friar named Antonio de Montesinos witnessed this and took an impassioned stance against it. In 1511, he gave a sermon denouncing Spanish behaviour and telling his countrymen that they were sinning gravely. 
This didn't go down too well amongst the colonists, although it did have an impact on a few important people, such as Bartolomeo de las Casas. Initially, King Ferdinand took the side of the colonists and ordered that Montesinos and his companions be recalled to Spain. But once there, they managed to turn him around to their point of view. While Montesinos clearly had the interests of the Taino at heart when it came to preventing the colonists from abusing them, as we learnt in the Setting the Scene episode, his and the church's alternative view also had its drawbacks. The vision which the laws were meant to create involved the converting of the Taino to Christianity, and as close a life as possible to that of a Spanish peasant. This meant giving up their lives, religion and culture, and living in settled Spanish-style villages within the estates of the Spanish landowners. Around half of the 35 laws deal with protecting the rights of the Taino, but the rest were related to Christianity and turning them into good Christians. It did try to protect them. There were clauses outlawing abuse for no good reason, ensuring that hammocks were provided as well as clothes. The big elephant in the room, however, which negated all of these protections, was that Indians were now forced to work on Spanish landowners' estates. The system of forced labour which had grown up due to lack of oversight and the greed of the colonists was now legally built into the structure of the colony. It was known as the encomienda. In terms of land ownership, the encomienda system basically made all land the technical property of the crown, which it then gave out to trustees. In practice, this did not change much for the colonists. Land was not taken away from them, even though they technically no longer owned it. It did, however, convert the Taino into tenants of the crown. I'm sure the Taino were grateful for their hammocks, but really that seems like a pretty minor concession. To be fair, amendments were made six months later, which said that women did not have to work in mines and children were not expected to perform the work of adults. But still, considering that 20 years earlier they had lived in their traditional manner and had not even heard of the Spanish, these concessions aren't really huge in the scheme of things. What's more, the lack of oversight caused by geographical distance meant that these rights and protections were probably weakly enforced. This was all framed within a paternalistic framework, which aimed to civilise and Christianise the Tainos for their own good. It's easier to justify all the economic benefit you gain from forced labour if you tell yourself that these people need saving and can benefit from your civilization. This is what the religious laws aim to do. The last of the amendments sums up this attitude, and I will quote its translation in full. It said, Also, we order and command that within two years, the men and women shall go about clad, that means clothed, and whereas it may so happen that in the course of time, what with their indoctrination and association with Christians, the Indians will become so apt and ready to become Christians, and so civilised and educated, that they will be capable of governing themselves and leading the kind of life that the said Christians lead there. We declare and command and say that it is our will that those Indians who thus become competent to live by themselves under the direction and control of said judges of the said island, present or future, 
shall be allowed to live by themselves, and shall be obliged to serve only in those things in which our vassals in Spain are accustomed to serve, so that they may serve and pay tribute which they, our vassals, are accustomed to pay to their princes. To put that into modern English, it basically says that after two years the locals will hopefully have learnt lots about how to be civilised and Christian people, thanks to their period working for free in the fields and mines. After those two years, if they have, they will be released from the encomienda system and will hopefully live like ordinary Spaniards. And incidentally, that means paying taxes. It's hard to tell how many were released after those two years, and I've been unable to find anything about a mass release taking place. Soon new lands and indigenous peoples were discovered, and so the encomienda system was established throughout the Spanish Empire. Its successor system remained in place for centuries. The result in Hispaniola, and many other parts of the empire, was the reduction. Essentially, these were mission villages, where the indigenous people were taught Christianity and had easy access to their place of work. They also had the effect of undermining social structures and accelerating the loss of culture. I will end by saying that you have to be careful when judging the laws of Burgos. It's hard not to view them as exploitative, and as you can probably tell, as I'm writing this, I'm struggling to find the balance between academic objectivity and relaying just what they meant for the Tainos. Last episode, when summing up Columbus's life, I spoke about the dangers of judging people from history by the moral standards of today, and this rings true here as well. Some people argue that these laws were actually very progressive for the time, and can even be described as humanitarian. The members of the church, like Montesinos, who lobbied to have these laws introduced, would have also believed that they were doing good. They were trying to save the indigenous people from being exploited by the colonists, and being such fervent Christians, changing their culture and religion was a good thing. I will be honest and say that in my personal opinion, taking a paternalistic attitude and forcefully imposing a culture and religion on people is not a great thing to do. But you could take the view that this was a genuine attempt at protection. Perhaps it was the best that could be achieved given the circumstances. Again, even if it was, I find it hard to look past the fact that the system involved forced labour, which made Spanish lives easier and richer. But perhaps this isn't as big a deal in some people's views as it is in mine. I will leave it up to you to decide what you think of the encomienda system. Next episode, we'll continue looking at early Hispaniola. Things are going to get interesting, as the Tainos will launch a revolt, and the Spanish will have a lot of trouble dealing with it. Around this time, the Spanish also started to properly look at colonising places outside of Hispaniola. We will take a look at some more exploration, and outline the extent of European knowledge of the new world. Until then, thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Latin American History Podcast, written and recorded by Max Sargent. For more information, visit the website, www.maxsargent.com slash the history of Latin America. And that's spelt M-A-X-S-E-R-J-E-A-N-T. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to get in contact 
at historyoflatinamericapodcast at gmail.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching for the Latin American History Podcast. The Twitter handle is at historylatinam. And if you've liked the show, you can help out by leaving a review on iTunes. Alternatively, if you visit the website, you'll see that each episode is accompanied by relevant photos. Most of these are my own, taken during my time in Latin America. All these photos and more are available to purchase as prints at my Etsy shop. You can find this at www.etsy.com slash photo. That's spelt www.etsy.com slash M-A-X-S-E-R-J-E-A-N-T photo. Thanks for listening.